There's no such thing as a camouflage Christian. No such thing as a camouflage Christian. Christians can't hide in a culture. You know, there's, a, there's an old uh, proverb, and I, I first heard it when we were, when we were in uh, missions in New Zealand for a little while, but the proverb goes like this, the tallest blade of grass is the first to get cut. And for a lot of reasons, that's my life proverb. Like I have, you know, t-shirts made for that. Like the tallest, some of you don't get it yet. It's because you're, you're Dutch. The tallest blade of grass is the first to be cut. All right. So the point of that proverb is, hey, you don't want to stand out too much. You don't, you don't want to stand out too much. You don't want to be the person that's like always, you know, the center of attention. You don't want to stand out too much. And unfortunately, especially in our culture, many of us, right, we're tempted to adopt that attitude about our Christianity. We don't, you know, yeah, we're okay with the Jesus thing, but we just don't want to, you know, be too much into the Jesus thing because we don't want to stand out. We don't want to be that blade of grass that, that is kind of standing above the rest, you know, one of Satan's deceptions that he has been very effective in using to attack the church is to convince us that we're believers when maybe we're not. He's clothed unbelief in Christian trappings. And he's pressured through cultures, he's pressured the church to become more like the world than like followers of Jesus. There's a calling here to distinctly Christian living which is much more than just church membership or church attendance. So this morning, as we look at this letter to the church at Laodicea, we're going to ask the question, am I a Christian? Do I stand out? Or am I just blending in with a culture? Am I distinct? Just as an example of how this might operate in our culture, um, you, you remember my friend Johnny Newton wrote the song Amazing Grace, okay? This is back in the 1800s, so we all know Amazing Grace, right? But in the 70s, there was an interesting thing that happened in the United States. So Amazing Grace, you know the song, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a, what is it? Wretch like me, right? So in the 70s, there were, there were churches, there were, I don't know, worship leaders, but there were churches who thought, you know what? That word wretch, it's just too strong of a word. Of course, the 70s, you remember, that's when the self-esteem movement in pop psychology was really exploding. And so there was a lot of pressure culturally that we shouldn't be saying things about sin. We shouldn't be saying things like, I'm a wretch. We shouldn't be saying that kind of stuff. It's bad for you. It's unhealthy for you psychologically to say that. So they changed the lyric. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. It was just true. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that uh, brought salvation to me, or something like that. This is true. But I just use that as an example to show how cultural pressure can cause Christians of the church to make adjustments so that we fit in with the way everybody else is thinking. I wonder if we're not in a similar situation to the church at Laodicea, which was tempted to make concessions, and indeed to participate in sin just to kind of stay under the radar. They didn't want to stand out too much. Well, as we'll see this morning, that's impossible. If we're going to follow Jesus, we must stand out. Let's pick it up here in verse 14 and just get, get, the bear, get our bearings here. Uh, so in verse 14, we read, uh, Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. So if you pause right here, you'll remember 
that every one of the seven letters uh, to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 starts with Jesus describing himself or reminding the church of a a feature of the vision that he gave John in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Jesus revealed himself to John and he showed uh, particular characteristics of his on, he put them on display, and he, and he talked about who he was, and so that some of those features are in each of the, the letters here, each of the seven letters, and so in this case, he keys in on this idea of Jesus being, Jesus keys in on this idea that he is the faithful and true witness. He adds another title here, though. Notice again in your Bible, verse 14, he says, thus says the Amen, capital A. Now, this is, this is a title that's actually unique in the New Testament. It probably comes from Isaiah chapter 65, verses 15 and 16, where the Lord there is saying he is the true God, the, the amen God, who uh, doesn't have to swear by anyone else because there's no higher authority to swear by. So, like, he's it. Like, his word is it. He's, he's the real deal. And so when Jesus applies this title to himself, he's referring to the fact that he is faithful and true, and there is no higher authority, and there is no one else who is more trustworthy or reliable. He is the amen, like period, right? He's the faithful and true witness, which again from chapter 1 was used in, in the vision there, but it reminds the church that Jesus is, not only is he trustworthy, but he was trustworthy to the point of walking a very difficult road for us. In fact, the hardest road. Because how was Jesus a witness? He was a witness in that he, he continued his living out right, what life is supposed to be as the Son of God who took on flesh for us. He continued on, the, on that road all the way to the cross. So he's saying, I'm the faithful and true witness, and you can trust me not only because I'm, I am that, but because I proved it by going to the cross for you. And so this is a reference to his, his faithful witness to the truth by going all the way to the cross. Thirdly, here in verse 14, he describes himself as the originator of God's creation. Some translations say the beginning of God's creation, but the idea is, is I think, best expressed here in the CSB. He's the originator. He's the author of creation. He's the one that did the creating. And so because of that truth, right, he has claimed ownership over creation. It belongs to him. He has authority over creation, which means he has authority over us. So in all of this, what's, what we're going to see, the church at Laodicea is, is struggled to make compromises just to fit in. And Jesus is calling that church and he's calling us to stand out. But on what basis? On the basis of his steadfast character. Jesus' steadfast character enables us to stand out. If you're going to walk by faith in Jesus in this culture, and you're going to look a little weird, it's going to be a little awkward at work, it's going to be a little uncomfortable at school, it's going to be a little bit weird with the family. If you're going to do that, you're going to do that by standing on the, the firm foundation that is the character of Jesus, who showed us what it looks like to walk a hard road. He showed us what it looks like to persevere to the end. Because he's the faithful and true witness. And he has authority to call us to this lifestyle because he's the originator of creation. It belongs to him. A couple takeaways here from verse 14. First of all, Jesus is God. He is reliable. He never changes. He is faithful. There's an important observation we need to make about cultures. And uh, you might remember it from your time at school. If you're in school now, you'll certainly know this. But cultures are fickle. Man, what is cool yesterday will not be cool tomorrow. I cite skinny jeans as exhibit A on that, right? I mean, cultures, moods, moods change so fast in a culture, right? 
But Jesus doesn't change. And if you're living your life based on what's culturally acceptable or what is cool or what is popular or what, based on what other people think, you will constantly be chasing a moving target. All the while, Jesus is right there. The amen. The faithful and true witness. The originator of creation. He's not going anywhere. And why does that matter to us? It matters to us because he calls us to trust him and therefore to stand out a little bit. Maybe to stand out a lot. Cultures are, cultures are fickle, but Jesus isn't. Of course, Jesus' word is trustworthy, and that's validated by his witness as he walked on that road to the cross. And so we have comfort and hope. The cool thing about thinking about Jesus being the faithful and true witness was that not only did he go to the cross, but he rose from the dead. And it's so great this morning, even celebrating baptism, what that coming out of the water pictures, right, that Jesus rose from the dead, we're connected by him with faith. And currently we have been made alive in Christ, but literally one day we will be made alive in Christ. We will be raised from the dead. And so there's comfort and hope. And so the objection comes through, should I really follow Jesus if it means I lose my job? I lose a friend? What about back in the first century where I could be imprisoned? Or maybe even be executed. Is it really worth it? On what basis am I going to have hope walking through that kind of a life? And Jesus says, you follow me. I'm the faithful and true witness. You follow me. Thirdly here, just to get a takeaway from verse 14. Because he is the originator of creation, Jesus' authority is absolute. And it is his word that matters most. I got to tell you, with technology, we have so much more access to so many voices today. We hear so much of what everybody thinks, okay? And yes, there's a time and a place to consider what others think. But the voice that matters most is the voice of Jesus. He created us. He's the one that knows what we were made for. He, because he's God, he knows what's wrong with us. And praise his name, he did something about it. And so you're going to wake up every morning, and somebody's voice is going to be loud, right? It could be your voice, where it's you just dictating, this is what I got to get out of life, this is what I got to get out of today. Or it could be someone in the family, or somebody again at school or at work, and it's their opinion that matters most. It could be a celebrity, right? Some, someone on the, on the news, some politician, right? Some prominent person whose their voice, what they say is what's most important to you. And maybe there's a corrective here. I know the church at Laodicea needed it. They needed to know that Jesus's voice was what needed to matter most to them because he is the originator of creation. So what does Jesus say? Well, watch verse 15. He says, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And apologies, we're heading into lunch, but there it is, all right? So this is the word of God, right? Jesus, uh, he, he says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. And so because you're neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, let let me show you where Laodicea Laodicea is on the map and explain this imagery because it all goes together, right? Remember that the Apostle John is on this island Patmos. He's been exiled there being punished 
because he's a follower of Jesus and an apostle. So he's being uh, punished by the local Roman authorities. So he's in exile there. He's written letters to all these churches here on behalf of Jesus in this uh, beginning part of Revelation. And we're finally here to the church at Laodicea. What's not shown here on the map is there are two other towns really close to Laodicea. One is called Colossae. And we know that from the book of the Bible, Colossians, right? In Colossae, you could get cold water. They, they had access, they had cold water springs there and, uh, and a, a stream that ran through the town. So there was cold water always available in Colossae from the runoff uh, from the mountains. So there was cold water, it was ready to drink, okay? And we know, it's hard to imagine today, but just imagine it was summer. Just like imagine it, like just, you know, picture it. And, uh, and you know, a hot, uh, on a hot day, a cold drink, like can't do better, right? Cold water is good and useful. The other town, the the tri-city area. The other town was Herapolis, okay? Herapolis was well-known and famous for its hot springs. Herapolis had a sweet jacuzzis, like hot tubs. Like, it was, it was a natural hot spring. People would go there for medicinal purposes. They would go there. They would go there just to kind of relax, and they would make use of these natural, natural occurring hot springs, right? And so they would go to the hot springs and enjoy it. And hot water, I mean, that, that has a lot of helpful uses. Um, some of them, of course, uh, for health purposes. Some of them just practical life, you know, cooking, all the rest. So hot water is, is useful and good. Now, what happened at, at Laodicea? Laodicea had neither of those things. So, so they actually, the Romans, they built aqueducts and, and, a, and actually a plumbing system. So this is actual from Laodicea. This is Laodicea. You can see it in the background. You can see these pipes here. This was part of the aqueduct system where they would pipe hot water from Herapolis to Laodicea. The water was hot when it left Herapolis. Guess what? By the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. So when Jesus uses this image, it really hits the people of Laodicea, right where they live. They know that lukewarm water is what we say in the business, bueno para nada, okay? It's good for nothing. You need cold water, you need hot water. It's the lukewarm water, it's not that helpful. The fact is, when Jesus uses this imagery, he's saying to the Laodiceans, if you're just blending in with the culture, you do not belong to me, and I will vomit you out of my mouth. You can say that you're a Christian. You can be associated with Christians. But if you are not passionate for me, if you are not actively living for me, like hot or cold water, distinct, right, from the medium, right? If you're not hot or cold, if you're not distinct from the world, then you do not belong to me. And the wording there is a little harsh. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. But Jesus is making a point. He's saying there are a ton of people who apparently in Laodicea were associated with the church, but they were not followers of his. And the, the, the sign that they didn't belong was that they didn't stand out in the culture. Now, what did that look like in Laodicea? Well, in Laodicea, you would have had uh, these, we've talked about it several times already throughout our series, the Re- Revelation, but you would have had these trade and worship guilds, okay? So all of the plumbers would have their favorite god or goddess that they would worship. The bankers at Laodicea, there was a big banking system in Laodicea. They had their favorite god or goddess that they would worship. There was a big medical school in Laodicea. They had their gods and goddesses that they would worship. And uh, there was a big textile industry in Laodicea. They had their gods and goddesses that they would worship. And if you were working in any of those industries, you had to go to those guild meetings, which were also worship services to the pagan gods. And you would have to offer a sacrifice, which would cost you some money. So you would bring the animal, or you would pay somebody to bring the animal. And this is the deal. You were, you, here you are now worshiping Jesus, and the apostles are saying, stop worshiping the false gods. And you're going, I don't know if I'm ready to do that. I don't know if I'm ready to stand out. And your boss at the bank is saying, are you coming to the trade guild meeting? Make sure to bring your sacrifice. 
And your family member says, hey, come on, all the textile workers, we're having our trade guild thing. Let's go. Let's bring the goat to sacrifice. And at the medical school, and you're thinking, if I don't go to this service, am I going to get a good grade? Am I going to graduate? And then Satan whispers, it's no big deal. Just cross your fingers. Right? Just cross your fingers and go. Just go, just, you know, just go and stand in the back. And they do the sacrifice, and you know, you're there, you know, like just, but you're not really into it, right? Just go because, hey, you don't want to lose your job. Because, hey, you don't want to get weird with the family on this. So just go and compromise your faith and look like the world. And the Laodiceans were doing it. And Jesus, it's interesting, I think in many ways this is the harshest, the most harshly worded letter of the seven. But when Jesus says this, I will vomit you out of my mouth, he's saying, this is not okay. There is no such thing as a camouflage Christian. This is not okay. Hot, yes, distinct from the world. Cold, yes, distinct from the world. Lukewarm, not going to work. So maybe you're here this morning, and you might even confess that you look and sound and think a little bit too much like everyone else. Or maybe there's a particular area in your life where you think, you know, this is an area where I just, my, I'm not distinctly Christian. My finances, my approach to marriage, my approach to retirement, my approach to, uh, to dating, I'm just not distinctly Christian here. And this morning, this, this passage of Scripture is a warning to us, and it's a calling. Watch verse 17. He actually clarifies how, how deceived some of these people in Laodicea were about their spiritual state. This is hard. Watch it, though. Verse 17. He says, For you say, right? Back, back one verse there, verse 17. For you say, I am rich. I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So here's what had happened. And this is, it's not, this is, we know, this is what happened. They were going to the trade guild meetings for the bank. They were going to the trade guild meetings, worship services for the medical school. They were doing it for the textile industry. They were keeping their jobs. They weren't just keeping their jobs. They were getting promotions. They were doing well financially. And they thought, I'm, got, I'm getting more money. God is blessing me. I'm doing great. I don't need help. I'm, I'm doing great. So there's, there's just a, a really important corrective here. Just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you're spiritually okay, right? So this is what they were saying, verse 17. For you say what? I'm rich. I've become wealthy and I need nothing. The danger of a wealthy culture, by the way, we live in the wealthiest culture potentially in the history of the world, okay? So the danger in living in a wealthy culture is that you don't think you need outside help. You think you're self-sustaining, Right? So that's what, would ha- that's what happened at Laodicea. They're like, I kept my job. I got the promotion. I graduated from medical school. I'm doing great. So they, so they said, oh, I don't need anything. And then Jesus says, but you don't realize, in verse 17, that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's where John Newton got the word wretch. He got it out of Revelation verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 17. And when we feel the need to edit the word of God, we've got a problem. If we don't recognize that we are spiritually poor, that we, outside of Christ, we are deserving of pity, 
that we think we see, but we're actually blind. We think we're clothed, but we're actually not. Our shame is exposed because we're not covered by the blood of Jesus, right? That, that state, if we don't think that we have need of Christ, we are woefully deceived. Just because you show up at a Christian church doesn't mean you're not blind. There's this affirmation here. The way I would say it is this way. Uh, underestimating our spiritual need leads us away from Christ. If we underestimate how much we need Jesus, right, we're deceived. And many will be deceived, or many have been deceived, or today many are deceived by unchecked cultural influence. So we often say it this way, and I think it's a helpful way to say it. We breathe American air. We can't change that, okay? This is where we live. And so the fact of the matter is, is that our culture will influence us. And you need to ask the question, are there ways this culture is influencing me towards suppressing Christianity? Like what my Christian faith would look like as I walk in obedience to Jesus? In what ways am I being pressured by my workplace, by my friends, by the culture at large, through media, whatever? Like in what ways am I being pressured to change, edit my Christianity to make it more palatable to the world. You got to be careful. You got to watch your, your Netflix intake. You got to watch what you're reading online. And just be aware. I mean, it's, it's listen, you, it's not like you don't read the news. We just got to be aware of what we're reading. And just because it has a Disney logo on it doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy or good. We might be deceived by unchecked cultural influence. We're just not, we just don't think about it. And these people thought they had it together. And there's a good, another warning here. If you don't think you need help, you need help more than anybody else. So if your thing is you're rolling into church, you're thinking, yeah, I mean, I'll do the Jesus thing a little bit, but honestly, I'm pretty good without him. You, you're blind and you don't know it. You're poor and you think you're rich. Of course, the consequence of being lukewarm is rejection by Christ. They were so successful, they had gotten complacent. And they just weren't that concerned about following Jesus and standing out. I wonder, do you, do you have a daily awareness of your need for a Savior? I mean, or is it a situation where you think you're past that? Because, brothers and sisters, we never move past the gospel. We never move past a recognition that without Christ... We are blind and pitiful and poor and naked. So what should these rich, deceived folks do? Get out their checkbooks. Watch verse 18. Jesus says, I advise you to buy. (laughs) Get out your checkbooks. I advise you to buy, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. And ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Just pause right here for verse 18. Okay, this is so connected to the details about Laodicea. So first, I told you Laodicea had this uh, banking industry, well-known banking industry. In fact, there was a tragedy once. Uh, It was an earthquake. And the Roman government offered the Laodiceans a loan to help them rebuild. And they said, we don't need it. Our banks are so healthy. We don't need your loan. Thanks, but no thanks. How do you like that? Anyway, they were proud of their bank. And yet here they were proud of their bank and they were spiritually bankrupt. 
And Jesus says, get out your checkbook and buy. Buy from me gold that is refined in the fire. Pure gold that's been refined because it comes from Christ and it's pure. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, when you put your faith in me, that's what the buy language is. When you put your faith in me, I give you value that no one can take away. Gold that is unparalleled in its value. It's so pure, nobody else has it. And Jesus says, I'm the only place you can get it. And I'm right here. So you're going to trade immeasurable riches in me for actual gold? Jesus says, buy from me the gold that lasts. Trust me. Keep, put your faith in me and walk with me. I'll, I'll, I'll give you this gold. You can buy this gold by faith so that you may be actually rich. Also, secondly, buy white clothes so that you may be dressed and, and the shame and nakedness be covered over. So this textile industry, this is absolutely true. In Laodicea, the textile industry, they were famous. And because of the the circumstances about how they did their process, they were famous for black textiles, black robes. You want to stand out in a culture? Wear white when everybody else is wearing black, (laughs) right? Jesus, and he's making a point. It's a metaphor, right? He says, buy from me white robes. White robes, why? Why? Because those white robes indicate your purity, the fact that you've been washed clean, and they cover your shame. So your shame, yes, we, we acknowledge we're, we're, we're wretches outside of Christ. We're pitiful outside of Christ. We have shame that's real shame and true guilt outside of Christ. But in Christ, when we buy from him, we buy white robes. Again, we're buying it how? Just by putting our faith in him. And we are covered and we are clothed. Listen, brothers and sisters, you look good in Jesus. You just don't look like the world. In Christ, we're clothed. And our shame is taken away. And our guilt is removed. And that's worth standing out a little bit. Thirdly, buy from him what? Ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Laodicea had a famous medical school. A medical school that was specifically famous for its eye salve. Okay? Jesus is making his point. Here they are, the supposed experts, right, in eye salve, and he says, you're blind. Jesus says, but buy from me the ointment that works. He's talking about spiritual sight. He says, you put your faith in me, and I will give you spiritual sight, so that now you can actually discern what you should be doing with your life. So now you can actually see clearly what's going on and what you're called to, called to do, how you're called to follow me. So Jesus is confronting, again, their complacency and their compromise with their culture, but he's confronting them and saying, trust me, put your faith in me. And as a result of that faith, now you will stand out. You will be different. But don't for a minute think that what the culture will give you, whether it's literal money, whether it's fitting in by looking like everybody else, or whether it's by, uh, you know, medical expertise or whatever else, don't think that any of that trumps the value of faith in Jesus and our salvation. He's like, that. he goes, that's the deal. You might lose the job. You might get kicked out of medical school. You might get kicked out of the textile industry. You might be poor. You might not look like everybody else. And yes, it might seem weird, but now you're valuing the spiritual over the physical. But Jesus says, nobody can beat this. Nobody can take it away. You see, there's, there's a cost to compromise. 
So he calls us to repent. Watch verse 19. As many as I love, and this is a harsh word, but Jesus reminds the reader that it comes because he loves, just like a father to a son, because I love you, I discipline you, right? As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. There were believers there who were tempted to compromise, and Jesus says, I love you. And so I'm, I'm calling you to not be lukewarm. How does he say it here in verse 19? So be zealous and repent. I love it. Like, what should we do? Jesus is like, get after it. No, maybe better. Get after me. <laughs> be zealous. That's, that's, a, that's passionate language there. Be passionate for me. Repent. Confess your sin. Turn from your sin and follow me. So again, not to earn forgiveness, but because they already have forgiveness. Not to earn the gold, they already have the gold. Not to get the white robes, because they already have the white robes. Not to, so that they can see, but because they've already been gifted sight in Christ, right? So because of the gospel, he says, let's go. Be zealous and repent. Pursue me. Be passionate for me. Get after it. In verse 20, there's an urgency here. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, so often we've heard this verse quoted in the context of evangelism. There's a backdoor to evangelism here. But notice that this is addressed to people who claim they were Christians. And so the knocking, it's not primarily a, a, an evangelistic knocking. The point here is Jesus is saying to the Christian, you need to wake up. You need to wake up. And what's letting Jesus in? It's dining with Christ. There's probably an allusion here to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's like, come on, let's go. Maybe there's an allusion to the Lord's Supper. They, they go together, actually. But he's saying, it's not like I'm calling you to punish you. He goes, I'm knocking on this door because I want to feast with you. I want you to be blessed. But that eternal feast may temporarily require that you stand out in the culture. So yeah, you might look a little weird to your family. It might cause some awkward moments at work. You might take some heat from the brutal kids at school or that university professor. Might be out of step with the majority thinking in these United States. But Jesus says it's okay. Because you can't beat what I've given you in salvation. So he says, let me in. Let me eat with you. You know, it's funny. Think about the Gospels. I, just, I was thinking about this this week. But in the Gospels, so often when Jesus would eat with people, it was controversial. Because they're like us, just a bunch of sinners. <laughs> and people were like, oh, you can't eat with them. They're from New Jersey, right? Like that was that's one. Of, I think it's in the Gospels. I can't remember which part. But anyway, it was something like that. But, you know, I mean, that's the deal. It's like, like, oh, Jesus is eating with them. They're a tax collector. They, he can't eat with them. Well, yeah, he can because he covers shame. He provides forgiveness, and he's given away gold. Prostitutes, can he eat with them? Yeah, he can. He's providing forgiveness. Call them to new life. Sure, he can. Lawyers, sure, absolutely. Right? And here, what is Jesus saying to us? He's saying, I'm ready to eat with you. And yet, me eating with you may not make you the coolest kid in, in school. But that's okay. Verse 21. Where is this road headed? If we're, if we're going to stand out and follow Jesus and be weird, maybe even be imprisoned in Laodicea, maybe even be killed, where does this road lead? Well, he says, to the one who conquers, right, to the one who overcomes the temptation to compromise, 
I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, and this actually comes to fruition in Revelation 19. We'll get there eventually. But here's the deal. Jesus is saying, at the end of the day, the one who will reign is Jesus. But in a beautiful, in a beautiful picture of vindication of the church, Jesus is going to allow the church to reign with him over the new earth. And so that reign, that eternal reign of Jesus with the church, it vindicates faith, even though right now we might be losing because we are followers of Jesus. That's what he says. Short-term loss, long-term gain. And right now, we might feel like all the powers that be are saying, you shouldn't believe this. You shouldn't teach this. By the way, that, that movement is happening right now in our culture to say that if you assert the, the teachings of the Bible about humanity, about the nature of sin, about who we are as created individuals, we're talking about gender, we're talking about uh, sexual identity, we're talking about what it means to, to be human. And if you, reject what the, if you are going to teach what the Bible teaches, you are going to harm other people. And you shouldn't be allowed to do it. And those laws are coming. They, we're, our culture is going to face it. We're going to have to figure it out. They, it's, it's happening. So there's pressure from the culture saying, you should not teach what this says. You should not believe this. And if you do believe it, you're going to be weird. You're going to stand out. And Jesus says, that's okay because one day you'll reign with me. Not just feast with me, be satisfied, but you'll reign with me. And so there's vindication in him in the future. So we may not be vindicated now, but we will be ultimately vindicated in the end. What's the point? Passion for Christ trumps payoff from culture. Passion for Christ trumps payoff from our culture. The culture is going to offer you something. Money. Job security. Acceptance. Peer approval. More likes. Maybe even some kind of, uh, you know, physical payoff, physical benefit. But passion for Christ must trump all of that. Where we say, Jesus is worth it. He's better. And my life is better trusting him and walking by faith in him. What does it cost us? It only costs us faith. And what does Jesus give us? He gives us that spiritual value. He gives us righteousness and acceptance, and he gives us spiritual sight. So what should you do? You should be zealous. What does that look like to run hard after Jesus? A couple of ideas here for you. Stay in God's word. It was so encouraging to hear in some of the testimonies today, just talking about how reading the word was a difference maker, and then turning to Christ and following Christ, and even continuing on in the Christian life. It's hard to run after Jesus if you don't know who he is. That's why we're big on the Bible. And we live in a day, we, again, we often reference it, but it's important to say, we live in a day when Bible literacy continues to go down. So more and more people have not read the Bible, are not familiar with the Bible. So we've, we read it. Let's talk about it. Let's try to understand it and explain who God is and what he calls us to. So get after Jesus. Run hard after him. How? By, how? by reading his word. Second, by gathering with his church. And not just showing up at church, but actually engaging in the community of the church, where you can be supported by other brothers and sisters in Jesus, which may, that may make the difference when you're tempted to compromise. And everybody's like, we're all going to see that movie. And you're like, wait a minute, I don't think I can go to that movie. We're all doing this. 
with our taxes. We found a new way to cheat the system. I don't know if I can do that. So we can support one another as we face the temptations of the culture around us. You want to run hard after Jesus? Sing his praise. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, full disclosure, front seats are the best at Green Pond because you get to hear all the saints singing. So no offense to the back seats. Back seats are great too for other reasons. Get out quick, all right? I get that, right? But there's something to, there's something to be said about hearing the saints sing about how great Christ is. And we're, in, we're mutually encouraged when we do that. How do you run after Jesus? You pray. You pray. Pray without ceasing every day. There doesn't have to be long, super spiritual sounding prayers. Just, Lord, help me. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Help me walk by faith. I'm struggling with this situation. Lord, be glorified in this. Give me wisdom here. Be zealous after Christ. The person who's zealous after, zealous after Christ will necessarily look weird and unusual to our culture. And repent. When sin rears its ugly head, and it will, we call it what it is. We don't pretend it's not a thing. We don't, not, we don't you know, oh, no, we're not going to talk about that. No, we call it what it is, and we turn away from it. And we cling to the cross. We're never moving past the gospel. We rejoice in the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And what do we do? We walk on in white robes. We walk on. Because, because of the gospel, we actually have an environment where we can say, yeah, I failed. I blew it this week. The way I treated my family, the way I behaved at work, the way, what I did at school, what I did at the weekend, I, I blew it. But you know what? Jesus paid for my sin. And that was wrong, and I turned my back on that. I don't want to do it again. I don't want to keep on that road. I want to, I'm going to turn my back on that, and I'm going to walk by faith in Christ. And, there, and we, can, we can confess without burden, without, without fear of condemnation, because of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Where, where are we walking to? We're walking to victory, reigning with Christ, and eternal feasting. So I don't know how you're pressured to accept payoff from our culture, but I do know this. Passion for Christ has to trumpet. And you just have to ask the question, am I zealous for the Lord? Am I willing to stand out? You know, thankfully, we don't live in the first century Roman Empire where you might get imprisoned for being a Christian. So that's nice, right? But the fact is, persecution is persecution. And so you you might face it in a different way. And you need to ask the question this morning, am I trying to live as a camouflage Christian or do I have passion for Christ that trumps any payoff the culture will offer me? John Newton, who, again, wrote Amazing Grace, he, his story is, I think, relevant here because he was working on a slave trip. He was slave ship. He was actually captaining a slave ship in the transatlantic slave trade in the 1700s, right? And... Um, he was 23 years old, uh, he was a captain, and he was not a follower of Jesus in any stretch of the imagination. He, would, he confesses that. And uh, it was March 1748, seems like, and there was a massive storm. He was awoken in the middle of the night, and he's captain of the ship. He, he rolls out of bed, he puts his feet down in ice-cold water. So listen, I'm not a sailor, nor the son of a sailor, but that's not bueno. If, we, like, if that's the deal, you're in trouble, right? Big storm. So he's working the pumps, 
uh, works the pumps to exhaustion for uh, till like, you know, after noon the next day. So from basically midnight to noon. Then uh, after that, he has to steer the ship. So there's exhaustion. It was a two-week storm, actually. So he's exhausted. But after that first, uh, like, right, 36, 48 hours, he was, to, he was to his breaking point. He's like, I have nothing left. I'm going to die. Like, he was resigned. He goes, I'm going to die. And what happened at that moment was the Lord did a miracle in his heart. And the Lord turned him to pursue him. He thought of Luke eleven thirteen, or read it. If he had a, I think he had a Bible on, on, the, on, on board. In Luke eleven thirteen, 13, Jesus says, If you then who are cruel and evil give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Spirit to those who ask? And he's like, I'm desperate. He goes, Lord, I'm asking. Will you intervene? And the Lord did. He writes about that moment. I had satisfactory evidence in my own mind of the truth of the gospel and of its exact suitableness to answer all my needs. I stand in need of an almighty Savior and such a Savior I found described in the New Testament. Fifty years later, writing about that moment, he was amazed that such a wretch, and I'm quoting here, that such a wretch should not only be spared and pardoned, but reserved the honor of preaching the gospel, which he blasphemed and renounced. This is wonderful indeed. It is amazing grace because it saves a wretch like me. Jesus calls us to passionate pursuit of him no matter what the culture is promising us. The question is, do we believe it? Would you pray with me and we'll ask Jesus to help us follow him by faith. Lord, we pause again this morning uh, just in a, in a mood of celebration over these baptisms, Lord, in a, in a mood of joy of the gospel. We've sung all we have is Christ. Lord, we thank you for your provision for us in Jesus. But Lord, we would confess that the pressure is on in our culture to compromise our faith, to fit in, to adjust the content of the Bible even. Lord, we pray for courage. Help us to see clearly the goodness of the gospel. Lord, help us to see that there is no greater gold than the gold refined by fire that you have given us. That there is no greater covering for our shame than the cross. Lord, that there is no, no other way to, to see clearly what's actually going on than to be granted sight by you. So Lord, we pray that we would be convinced of your goodness and the goodness of the gospel. Remind us that you are the amen, the faithful and true witness. And Lord, as we may be struggling this morning with compromise, I pray that as we are, we would confess that as sin. And Lord, maybe there are some here this morning who have never trusted in you. And I pray that today you would convict them of their sin and they would see the goodness of the gospel, that forgiveness is available not through our efforts, but because of your cross, because of your death on our behalf and your resurrection. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to remain distinct witnesses in this world until our last breath, or you return. Lord, help us to see compromise for what it is as failure. And Lord, may we be comforted by knowing that, that we do have a safe haven in you. But Lord, may we be warned that ongoing, repeated uh, failure in this area may be a sign that we are lukewarm, and that you must spit us out. 
So Lord, we, we ask for help. We need your help. Outside of you, we are wretches, pitiful, poor, and blind. But praise be to you, Lord Jesus, that because of the gospel, we, we are given this glorious gift. So help us to walk by faith even now as we go. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.